0: Thank you for praying with me. I'd like us to read the entire passage together before the sermon, and if you're able to, would you please stand as an expression of honor, recognizing that this is God's holy word. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Thank you. You may be seated. So when Meredith and I were first married, our first Christmas, I was not yet a very accomplished gift giver. Uh, I had not developed any skill at giving gifts whatsoever. And so my first Christmas gift to Meredith uh, was not a success. Um, the legend has grown over the years. as to just how bad this gift was. Um, but I think it involves some really ugly pajama pants and like a rolling pin and a cookbook that was weird and didn't even have the correct form of measurements for the ingredients. And it was just a big disaster. It was not, not good, not a good gift. I think I've gotten better at giving gifts. And one of the secrets of giving good gifts, you guys might know what it is. If someone asked you, what's the secret of giving good gifts? I wonder if anybody has any thoughts what it might be to listen. Usually that's what you hear. That's the advice. Just listen to throughout the year, listen to the things that they appreciate or want or need. And then based on the information you gather through good listening, you'll know how to give a good gift, something that's going to actually be pleasing to the person or honoring to the person. Well, I have a proposition for you, for us as a church this Christmas. Will you commit with me to listen to Jesus Christ and give him good gifts based on what we hear from him in his word this Christmas, each Sunday? We are not a large church, and we don't have the resources of a large church. You know, we used to have a full choir, and we just don't have that many singers anymore. It's hard to put on a major cantata and things like that. It's hard to do major programs. We don't have sports complex to run a big sports program like some of the mega churches do. We don't have, there's no fog machine. Actually, we did used to have a fog machine. I found, it was in the youth building. I think it, I think it was more used for comic purposes than sincere ones. But this is something that we can do. We can listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and respond obediently and faithfully in a way that honors him and pleases him. And that's the very most important thing. So will you commit with me this Christmas that we'll do that together? We're in the book of Revelation, and I realize as I read that passage, some of you may have been scratching your head. This is a weird first passage for Advent. Uh, Two years ago, we began the book of Revelation during Advent, and we've not made it real far And this might be the last Advent that we stay in Revelation, but I think that the way these passages will arrange themselves this year is going to be really good for us, if that is our commitment, that we want to listen to the risen Lord Jesus and respond well. Chapters 2 and 3 are these individual letters to churches, directly from Jesus to his churches. And as we listen in on these letters, we're going to learn a lot about what he cares about. We're going to learn a lot about what he values, what he wants from his churches. Often churches will scramble and they'll come up with all kinds of things that they want. But what does Jesus want from his churches? We're going to listen well through these passages. It's going to time out perfectly because we did two of these last year that on the last Sunday of the month we'll finish the last of these introductory letters. And so I'm really excited about what we're going to see. And what I want to encourage us to do... Obviously, as Christians, we don't want to get so distracted by the hustle and bustle of the season that we forget Jesus altogether. But I think another pitfall we could accidentally fall into is only remembering Jesus as he was and not listening to Jesus as he is. It's such a sentimental, nostalgic time, and that's good, and we want to remember the miracles of his birth. But we don't want to do that to the neglect of listening to him now. Because as we will see, he is no longer a baby in a manger, and he's no longer humble riding on a donkey, and he's no longer bloodied on the cross, and he's no longer dead in the tomb. He is resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, glorified and very much in charge of his church, very much involved in his church. Each of these letters begins with a short introduction and they each capture a different facet of the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. The first one talks about him as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the, um, the churches. He's involved. He holds them in his hand, and he walks among them. He's present. The second letter introduces him as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. And then ours here is the third, And we'll read verse 12 together again. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, angel there, it could be an angel, but it seems more likely to me that it's a messenger from the church who's going to bring this letter back, but it doesn't go into great detail here. It doesn't seem to be the priority to explain exactly what's meant by that term angel. The main thing to get right now is to see Jesus as he is here says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So let this just adjust your perception of Jesus a little bit. He is pictured here as the one with a sharp two-edged sword. Now this to these readers would have signaled power and might to establish and enforce justice. Basically, he is not weak. He is strong. He's stronger than the Roman armies. He's stronger than our North American armies now. He is the Almighty One, the most powerful being. That is who we're listening to. So we want to listen to him, and we want to give him good gifts, the things that he actually wants. And we're going to observe together while we listen to this letter, starting in verse 13. The letter is basically two parts. There's a, a Commendation and a correction to the church in Pergamum. So we'll get our first gift ideas from the commendation in verse 13. Verse 13 says, this is Jesus speaking to his church in Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the first thing I just want to point out and for you to realize is that Jesus knows his churches. It's so easy to think about Jesus as a historical figure and that we still want to honor the memory of him, but he is very much engaged with his churches now. And he knew the church in Ephesus, that they had good works and they were patiently enduring and that they would not stand for false teaching, but that they had lost their first love. And he knew the church in Smyrna, that they were enduring great tribulation and persecution, and that it was only going to get worse. And he knows the church in Pergamum, and he knows Doolin's Grove, and he knows Shiloh, and he knows Hope, and he knows Arlington Baptist Church. He knows his churches. He understands what's going on with us. He knows that we'll be voting on eldership next week. He knows that Our navigation of COVID has been tricky and delicate, and we've done our best. He knows that there are many who aren't with us who would love to be with us, but just still aren't comfortable. And he knows that there are many who aren't with us because they've gotten out of the habit of being with us. He knows our struggle to disciple and bring up our younger generation of leaders. He knows our struggle to minister well to our church's children and young parents. He knows all about the split several years back. He knows everything that's going on. He understands our church better than we understand our church. It, it, again, over Thanksgiving, and this is the, it happens every time you see people you don't see for a while when you're a pastor, inevitably, several people will ask, well, how's it going with the church? And I overthink everything, and I'm way too exact with the way I talk about things, but I get paralyzed at that question because there's so many facets to the church. How do you answer that question? How's it going with the church? How would you? How do you think it's going? Well, there's almost as many answers as there are individual people within the church. There's great things going on. There's terrible things going on. It's always this mixed bag, and I almost want to tell them, I don't know. Because in the end, it's going to, I'll know in time. Like, I feel like I understand how we were doing 10 years ago way better than I feel like I understand how we're doing right now because we're in it. But Jesus understands his churches, and he knows them. He doesn't just know his churches, though, he also knows the surrounding culture that his churches find themselves in. That's really what he's focused on here when he begins his letter to the church in Pergamum. He knows our current climate of division and tension and confusion and fear in our culture here as a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He understands all that. He knows how we feel there's a shift happening in our place in the community and culture as Christians. He sees the way our community and our, our institutions are dismantling the foundations of humanity brick by brick. He sees and knows and understands all of that. And when he looks at Pergamum, he knows that these Christians are basically living in Satanville. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then there at the end he mentions again where Satan dwells. You live where Satan lives. You live where Satan himself is in charge of of everything. Now again he doesn't elaborate and explain what that means, but we know a little bit about Pergamum from history. I didn't just know it. I had to look it up. I don't want you to think I'm smarter than I am. But Pergamum was a center for all kinds of pagan idolatry and all the immorality that went along with pagan idolatry. They worshipped Zeus and all the other usual suspect false gods that they worshipped back then. But even more prevalent than that, it was a center for emperor worship. They worshipped their national leader, the emperor, as a god. They would call him God and Savior. And they, they didn't just like accidentally worship him by placing him too high on a pedestal. They literally worshipped him like a god. And it was pretty much mandatory. To worship the emperor was patriotism. To refuse to worship the emperor was treason, and you could be killed for not doing it. Now, I don't think that worshiping our national leaders is really a big issue in our church, at least not in an overt way. And I wasn't even really going to go into that during this sermon, except last weekend, my friend Travis, the pastor at Shiloh Advent Christian Church, and I drove up into the mountains of Virginia to meet with some youth leaders from our region, and it got dark. I mean, it was probably only 7.30, but it was dark. And we're winding these country roads to get up to this campground where we're meeting. And we come around a corner, and there all of a sudden, at le- and I don't exaggerate when I tell stories, at least a 35-foot-tall Donald Trump. I really think it was about 35-foot-tall Donald Trump was there and we went rounded the corner. Now, I don't know the motivation of the person who went through the trouble of figuring out how to procure a 35-foot-tall Donald Trump. I don't know where you would get it, but a lot of effort went into that. And so I thought, with that fresh on my mind, let me just mention, be careful not to fall into worshiping your national leaders. They're just men, women like me and you, fully flawed. They'll be gone in a decade. don't worship national leaders, okay? Some nations do that. They did that. They made it official. You worship the emperor. But not these folks at Pergamum. They did well, and they withstood, and they didn't do that. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. So here's our first gift idea. If we want to listen well to Jesus and we want to learn what he wants from us as a church, here's the first one from this passage. I'm going to give you three because I always do threes. I can't help it. Publicly identify with Jesus by name. That's the first thing Jesus appreciates wants from his churches is that we publicly identify with him by name. That's what they did. It says, yet you hold fast my name. Even though you live in Satanville, there's so much idolatry and emperor worship going on. You didn't go along with it. You held fast to my name, the name of Jesus Christ, even though that might have gotten you killed. And as we find out, as we read on, it did get one person at least killed. You held fast to my name. They were under incredible hard pressure to at least notch down Jesus to be just another god alongside these gods and alongside the emperor, and they didn't do it. They held fast. This fellow Antipas was a faithful witness, and he was killed among them, most likely because he refused to go along with it. If we want to honor Jesus Christ this Christmas, this is a a great starting point. It's a great way to do it. Be known as a Christian, a Jesus Christ follower. Don't be ashamed of the name of Jesus. You know, you get into those situations where you can kind of feel the tension of, this might be one of those opportunities where I could verbalize what I believe to be true about Jesus Christ, but you feel awkward and you hesitate, and sometimes you do it, And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just kind of bite your tongue and let the conversation proceed. Be watching out for those this Christmas season. And when you get the opportunity, speak up. Well, I believe in Jesus Christ, and he taught this. That might be pertinent to what we're talking about right now. I go to church on Sundays because I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's our Lord and Savior. I know that may sound like weird religious language, but here's what it means. It has practical meaning. Just be open about the fact that you are with Jesus. That's a simple thing. Hold fast to the name of Jesus. The name is the public identity, the public persona, the public reputation of Jesus Christ. Even if it's awkward, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it makes you unpopular, even if it means that you might lose your job, even if it means you might lose your life, don't let go of the name of Jesus. It's unlikely that you'll lose your life. Which brings us to the second gift idea. They held fast to his name, and they did not deny his faith. Or, in other words, they did not deny their faith in him. The first gift idea is to publicly identify with Jesus by name. And the second is to recommit to everyday faithfulness to Jesus. Recommit yourself this Christmas to everyday faithfulness faithfulness to jesus christ and here's what i mean by that everyday faithfulness we are not under hard pressure to deny jesus as our lord and savior now that may come and there may be pockets where it's more uncomfortable than others but we're not really threatened with the loss of life if we refuse to worship anyone or anything else other than jesus like they were but we're under soft pressure to let go of the name of Jesus and to let go of faithfulness to him. And soft pressure, I I actually think, might be a more effective tool of Satan to cause Christians to let go of Jesus than hard pressure. I I think that some people might muster the courage to stand up to an armed person who says, you will not worship Jesus, then they would be likely to stand up to just the slow, subtle habit of neglect that our culture facilitates so well. I think a a direct threat to us would probably mobilize Christians to be here, whereas an indirect seduction lures Christians away from here. And I think Satan's pretty sharp, and I think he knows that, and I think his plan has been pretty effective with large segments of the church. So let's focus on everyday faith, just the everyday stuff of being a Christian. Recommit to reading your Bible. Recommit to praying and depending on the Lord. Recommit to being here on Sundays. Just the everyday stuff. Recommit to bringing your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Recommit to honoring your mother and father. Recommit to loving your neighbor. Just the basics of everyday life as a Christian. I know we all love launches. I've talked about this before, but there's something about human beings that we love launches. We're launching a new program. We're launching it. We're not launching anything here. We're returning to the basics. Recommitting to the basics. And that is in itself a pretty radical thing in a world that is completely designed, our culture is completely tailored to encourage you to let go of everyday faithfulness to Jesus. There are so many distractions, there are so many things that seem more urgent, so many things that seem more appealing. And before you know it, you've let go, and in that way, you've denied the faith. So what does Jesus want from his churches? He wants us to publicly identify with him by name and not be ashamed of it or afraid to do it. And he wants us to live in just everyday, Monday, normal Christian faithfulness to him. I really want to distill that down to just one, just recommit to being at church on Sunday mornings. You'd be amazed at how much flows out of that one commitment. I'm going to be at church on Sunday mornings, and then I'm going to respond to what I hear in God's word through the week. You'd be amazed at what can come from just that. But again, our world has taken that away. Schedules have taken that away. We talk our my kids are getting involved in sports now and I just remember that there used to be no sports even on Wednesday nights because everybody went to church. And there certainly were not sports on Sunday mornings. But you know, our culture bit by bit takes it away. We need to take it back. We need to hang on to everyday faithfulness to Jesus like a teenager hangs on to their cell phone. Think of yourself as a teenager who's on a roller coaster at Carowinds and they forgot to secure, give their cell phone to somebody and they can't get it in their pocket. How tight would that teenager hold on to that cell phone on that roller coaster to make sure they don't drop it? That's us hanging on to Jesus Christ in this world. So we've read the commendation. They did well. They held fast to Jesus' name and they didn't deny the faith. Now let's read the next two verses, the correction, and get our final gift idea for Jesus. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now there's a lot in there that might bring question marks up in your mind, And I don't want to go real deep into Old Testament history. For one reason, I'm afraid I'll get, get a detail wrong, because I have a hard time keeping Old Testament history straight in my mind. Does anybody else? I thought maybe divulging that would make you feel better about yourself. But what he's referring to here is a Gentile sort of sorcerer guy who was hired to put a curse on Israel, and it didn't work. And sometime later, he switched strategies, and through his advice, Israel began to intermarry and get involved with marrying women from the pagan surrounding culture. And in that way, Israel got compromised and the men got lured into idolatry and sexual immorality. And his point is sort of what I was just talking about. Rather than a direct attack, they were doing well against the direct attack. They said, no, I'm not going to go worship the emperor. Their friend knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm going down for emperor worship. Are you coming? And they said, no, I'm not because I worship Jesus Christ. Like they were bold Courageous, they did that. But internally, for some reason, some among them were beginning to accept a false teaching that was to them a stumbling block. So if Satan can't get you with direct attack, he'll try to get you with a stumbling block, a more subtle approach. And it was working there, as it had worked with Israel in their history. Back in their history, it was through intermarriage that. Israel was lured into idolatry and sexual immorality. Now it was through this false teaching from these Nicolaitans, which you don't have a great deal of information about scripturally, but at the very least we can see that those who were holding to this false teaching were either allowed to or encouraged to take part in the pagan idolatry and sexual immorality of the culture around them. And this is, again, what Satan wants. He wants to lure God's people away from faithfulness to Jesus into idolatry and or sexual immorality. These have, these have been the big two for all of the history of God's people. And this is what Satan was doing to them and what he might do to us, which brings us to our third gift idea. Repent of idolatry and sexual immorality. So first we want to honor Jesus this Christmas by publicly identifying with Jesus by name. Second, we want to honor him by recommitting to everyday faithfulness to him. And third, we want to repent of any idolatry or sexual immorality that may have crept into our lives as Christians, as a church. Now, we, we live in such a secular time that there, there really isn't any overt idolatry pressed upon us that we know is idolatry, that we aren't going to another temple to worship some other God knowingly. But there are subtle ways that we will place other things or endeavors or people above God as our foremost, that we'll live for other things other than God, and that will ratchet him down in the priorities. God's people have always been radical in the fact that they worship the one true God. In ancient times, that was radical because they worshiped many, many gods, and they thought it was crazy to worship just one God. And it's radical now because no one knowingly worships anything. And they think we're crazy to worship anything, knowingly. So if anything has crept into your life that has come above God in your heart, in your priorities, that may be an idol. You may be idolatrous. And if you want to honor Christ this Christmas, repent of it. I've been praying in preparation for the sermon, that the Holy Spirit would convict us if there is any idolatry among any of us. So I trust the Holy Spirit to do that. And then secondly, another thing that has always marked God's people as distinct is their ethics related to sex. We believe that sex is reserved for heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. And outside of that, It is immoral and dishonoring to God. Now, they had a a wildly unhinged sexual ethic in that pagan culture. Do we have a wildly unhinged sexual ethic in our culture? Yes, we do, in maybe different ways, but we certainly do. And so, again, I've trusted the Holy Spirit to convict if there is any sexual immorality among us as a church, and I'll trust him to do that for you. But if you do sense that conviction that you have any idolatry or sexual immorality, repent of it, and that will honor Jesus Christ this Christmas. Now, I've used terminology of gift-giving, and that's mainly just as a way, as a sneaky ploy to try to keep your attention, because that's not actually the language of the text. And it's actually a little too light uh, Gift language implies that this optional, it it would be a nice bonus if you wanted to give Jesus the gift of acknowledging him publicly and being faithful to him every day and repenting of idolatry and sexual immorality. In reality, he is standing here with the sharp two-edged sword, and there are consequences if we will refuse to submit to this passage of Scripture. And so I want to read the remaining verses. I'm not going to go into them at length. The main points that I felt compelled to make, I've already made but let's just read these remaining verses. There's mystery on the edges of a lot of the book of Revelation, and I won't be able to thoroughly explain everything, all the imagery, but let's read verses 16 and 17. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, most likely meaning the false teachers among them. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So in short, a refusal to repent triggers judgment from Jesus Christ against this church. He's involved not just as a kindly old like grandfather figure, he has expectations for his churches. And then those who conquer, which is the language used of all these churches, those who hold fast his name, don't deny his faith, don't get sucked into idolatry and sexual immorality. There's rewards spoken of. He talks about manna, which if you'll remember was miraculous provision for need back in the Old Testament. And then he talks about this white stone with a new name written on it. He doesn't explain it here. I think they would have understood it perfectly. From what I've read, there was a practice during the Roman games in the Colosseum that the victors would get a a white stone with their name on it, and that would be their ticket into the victory celebrations. Maybe that's what he has in view. I'm not going to hit that nail too hard because it's just not explained here in the passage. But the idea is that there are rewards for submitting and responding well to Jesus' words, and there are consequences to not doing so. Now, we've listened to Jesus together this morning. And now it's time to respond in concrete, real, focused ways. That's part of what we'll discuss for those who remain in the sanctuary here, along with the eldership matters. But I want to encourage you not to leave what you've heard behind when you exit the sanctuary. Just try to remember those three points and meditate on that today and this week. How can I honor Jesus by publicly identifying with him by name? How can I recommit myself to just the everyday faithfulness of being a Christian? And do I have any idolatry or sexual immorality in my life that I need to repent of? The good news of Christianity is that Jesus came, and he succeeded where we failed, and he died on the cross in payment for our failures and our sins. And so when we repent and confess and receive his forgiveness, we're empowered each time to be a little more successful at living the Christ-like new life that he secured for us on the cross. So let's pray for God's help in these things together right now. Father, thank you for giving us this passage of Scripture, this word from Jesus to his church. And I pray that we would have ears to hear. And I pray that we would hear what the Spirit has said to his churches and that we would respond with full-hearted desire to honor Jesus Christ above all else. Lord, help us to hold fast his name, help us not to deny his faith, and help us to repent of any idolatry or sexual immorality. In Jesus' name, amen.